Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is February 22nd, 2024, and I'm joined today as usual by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews, and by our guest, IPI Research Fellow, Dr. Dan Gerritsen. And we're going to be talking today about the militarization of space, which has been much in the news lately. And of course, uh, we have an actual, you know, you've heard the phrase that this ain't rocket science. Well, we have an actual rocket scientist. Uh, uh, Dan, in addition to his affiliation with IPI, works on space topics. He works on space mobility and he has a PhD from Harvard in astrophysics. So we're going to talk about space with an actual, not like not like Dr. Matthews and I, who are just sort of like science fiction space nerds, but with someone who actually <laughs> knows what he's talking about. So with that, I'll turn things over to Dr. Merrill Matthews. And Dan, you know, we've talked in the past, we did a podcast on space trash and some of the problems that 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 poses. And now we've recently heard that the Russians apparently at least half are maybe getting ready to put in space a nuclear weapon. And then that raises questions about if that was, if they do that, what would that be for? Would that be for military purposes? Could it be for other purposes? The discussion came up, well, maybe they would be using that to, if they do that, they could use it to wipe out some satellites up there and therefore uh, limit communications and other things. But it, it, there's been a long time, a long running concern about the eventual militarization of space. This was going on back in the 50s and 60s when there was a, a space race going on. What, where do we stand on that issue? We, there, there's a background here, isn't there? Uh, there, there is, and and uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, there's a ton of ways to think about militarization of space and what that means. You know, in many ways, I think of it as kind of an unfortunate reality. Space has been uh, kind of a tool of the military almost from day one, uh, and that's mainly around surveillance and communication. Uh, you know, major capabilities there. Obviously, when we're talking about ballistic missiles, you're going to be dealing with uh, transit through space, through lower Earth orbit, um, with the 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 missiles. I think a lot of the current concern obviously gets to the point of actually putting weapons uh, in space and some of the potential concerns around that. Uh, you know, it's easy to see the immediate uh, red flags from that. You know, suddenly you've got uh, weapons that are very short distance from the U.S. because they're just in space. They just activate them and send them right down on the uh, uh, on the continent. And uh, a ton of, ton of concerns there that uh, that immediately come to mind. Um, and I'm sure, as, as we'll talk, I, there's also a number of uh, problem problems about doing that. So it makes it very challenging in other ways, but we can talk about that as we go along. Dan, do we know that there are no weapons in space right now? Are we are we uh, sure about that? Uh, no, I don't think we do. Um, and the there there's a, a a couple ways to break that down. So when you think about weapons in space, there's uh, there's a what's the use, and b what's the type of weapon. So I think of weapons in a couple of different categories. You know, we, we think about nukes as the big problem. You got this massive explosion and whether that could destroy satellites or whatever, or potentially create uh, an EMP, electromagnetic pulse, 
that would uh, wipe out electronics and so forth. So you've got that kind of a scenario, but you've also got things like what are, what are called kinetic kill vehicles. And these are just basically, think of them as rocks. You've got a, a bunch of stuff moving at high velocity. If you can direct this rock uh, in the right direction and you could blow up a, whether it's a space, uh, you know, a manned spacecraft even, or a satellite or something like that. So you destroy uh, satellites that way. And that's typically what your anti-satellite uh, capabilities are. There, there's some sort of a missile that uh, maybe there's a bit of an explosive, but for the most part, it's just a smart rock that they're, you know, or a rock that they're throwing at the device. Um, and then the third type of category of weapon that I would say is uh, what's called uh, directed energy weapons. You know, think lasers. Um, and certainly that was the vision behind Star Wars. We'd have the space lasers operating at distance, and that was not a reality at the time. But uh, the power of lasers has gotten greater and the ability to uh, to uh, concentrate that power to distance uh, has grown. So those are becoming, you know, more and more of a reality, at least uh, in terms of other capabilities. But again, those would tend to be aimed at satellites. Um, so the uses, of course, are against other space assets. So destroy satellites or what have you, or, of course, as a weapon that you could immediately target at a ground based target. Uh, and it would be there in a matter of minutes uh, as opposed to the, you know, half hour uh, coming from Russia into the U.S., for example. If I remember right, there was a, uh, a science fiction movie starring Clint Eastwood called Space Cowboys. And <laughs> they were flying around the world in the um, uh, in the space shuttle. And they saw, if I remember right, a Russian satellite up there that did have nuclear weapons in there. And they ended up having to try to figure out a way to keep that from falling to the earth. So uh, it, I suppose we've been thinking about that kind of thing for some time. Yes, we have uh, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I would say that the likelihood that there are nuclear weapons in space, certainly useful ones, is low. I wouldn't say it's non-existent, so I, I can't say it's zero. Um, you know, there may be others that, that, that could say that, but but the likelihood is incredibly low. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Certainly there's there's distinct signature, distinct things you can you can look at. It's not immediately uh, possible to tell the mass of something. So it's a little challenging there. But, you know, different characteristics they can look for on the launch, whether that uh, how that system is used, where it's deployed, um, that kind of thing, indicators. Um, but the other thing is, you know, so if you put the, the nuke in space, uh, it's very vulnerable. Like we know they've got systems tracking all the debris, all the uh, stuff in space. Um, and it's there because we need to know where stuff is because you've got manned spacecraft going up, you've got other satellites. So we need to know where all the stuff is. So if we suspect anything's a nuclear weapon, it's very easy to know where it is and we have the capability to take it out. Um, so those aren't exactly secure assets uh, when they're there, but if, you know, if they're managed to sneak it up, then, you know, who, uh, I guess all bets are off at some level. I'm just, I'm just kind of skeptical that that's a, a reality. Dan, I'm glad you brought up uh, Star Wars, and you know, for our listeners, we should we should emphasize the fact that we're not talking about the movies. We're talking about Ronald Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, and the yep. idea was that there would be actually weapons in space, uh, and this is you know, as the lore of the late 1980s holds it, this was the thing that sort of psyched Gorbachev out because he felt like they just could not compete technologically, yep. and. Some of the platforms that were proposed were of the sorts you described, you know, laser energy weapons and things like that. But some of them were also these kinetic kill vehicles like you were talking about. Like there was like, I think one was called like Rods of God. And the idea would be that you would just literally just release a titanium rod. 
And, yep. you know, by the time it, by the time gravity had done its magic, this thing would have had uh, the same destructive impulse as, as a, you know, as a nuclear weapon by the time it reached its target on Earth. And you also had something, I think they were called shining pebbles or something. Br uh, uh, brilliant pebbles. Brilliant yep. pebbles, right. <laughs> and these were very small particles uh, yep. that, again, were, you know, but yep. because of physics, you know, you, you, all of this energy gets imputed to this relatively small object. So by the time it actually, you know, hits something on Earth, it's it's of devastating power. And right. we, we don't know that any of that was ever deployed, but of course we wouldn't, would we? <laughs> Not necessarily. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there's there's lots of things that they can bear information. A lot of what Star Wars was intended for was frankly being able to take out a nuclear threat. So let's say Russia launched a bunch of nuclear weapons. The idea was to have a capability to destroy those weapons before they got to the U.S., um, and so the schemes you were talking about, the, when Reagan first announced it, and I did, by the way, I did a lot of work on uh, Star Wars back in around that time frame. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the the initial announcement focused on the laser weapons quickly became real, uh, you know, became uh, people became aware of the fact that that was not a reality anytime soon at that time. That's changing now. But um, but the, so they focused on these kinetic kill vehicle options. And the brilliant pebbles one was you had a ton of these fairly small systems in space, and if a if a launch comes up from Russia, you just redirect several of them to hit the uh, hit the um, launch vehicles as they come up out of the atmosphere and destroy them, you know, almost immediately. That was the idea, anyway. Uh, turned out there was a lot of challenges to making that a reality, but uh, but that was at least the 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 initial concept. Dan, my recollection when all of this was being discussed is that there was one significant obstacle, and it wasn't so much technology as it was that there is a treaty banning the militarization of space. Is my recollection correct about that? That's correct. So there's a there's a there are treaties banning the deployment, in particular of nuclear weapons in space. Uh, and I believe that's um, uh, like the, a 60s era treaty of some sort. Uh, and I think it, it, it includes a lot of these uh, kind of missiles, anti-satellite weaponry as well. Um, so a lot of the anti-satellite systems are typically deployed from aircraft, um, you know, heading up into low earth orbit. But uh, but that's right, those, the, those treaties are concerns for a lot of these, uh, these systems deployments. Of course, the thing about treaties is that they only bind people who are willing to be bound by them, right? <laughs> as a, as opposed to players who are willing to ignore them. I also wanted to mention one more thing. I can tell that Dr. Matthews is is uh, is antsy to ask another question, but I wanted to also mention that when we talk about whether or not there are weapons in space, we do know that the Air Force, it, it may now be under the aegis of, of Space Force, I'm not sure, but we know the Air Force does in fact have this this space plane, this vehicle that that they launch and that they keep in orbit, and it looks like sort of a miniature version of the space shuttle, uh, but but really no one knows what it's doing. It, you know, <laughs> it might it, it might just be you know proving certain technologies, but we don't actually know what that that what the payload of that vehicle is, do we? Uh, yeah, that that's a great question. I actually have looked into that in the past, and I have not been able to figure that out. Um, honestly, what that what that is, I've heard you know speculation uh, of a bunch of different things. One seems to be a lot of just sort of understanding the space environment. So having a long um, time frame for a device in space, then you you bring it down, and you're able to sort of collect measurements over time, uh, but also um, have things that they can look at when they bring it back to the uh, the ground with the space plane capabilities. But uh, uh, they just launched, I believe, launched it again uh, in December, I think, on one of the SpaceX rockets. Yes. Um, one of the launches at that time.
So, Dan, one of the when the news broke about the Russians possibly putting a nuke in space, there was some discussion that the Republican chair of the committee wanted to release the information. The Democratic uh, the ranking member did not want to. Uh, I think there was some pushback from the Biden administration thinking uh, feeling like this was just too soon to release this information. And that and there was also some pushback saying, well, you know, they may be thinking about it, but they could be years off. And so it raises the question is if there was was there an ulterior motive in releasing this information? If it's not as imminent as it kind of sounded like once the media hit on it, were they maybe trying to get additional funding from the federal government? Because the one of the ways you get additional funding is you create a crisis and then Congress often acts. <laughs> that is uh, that is exactly my initial reaction. Um, now I, I will let me caveat that by saying certainly such a uh, if if such a thing were a reality, it would be it would be incredibly concerning. There is no question about that, and I can go. We you know, we've talked a little bit already about some of the reasons for that. But my immediate reaction is never underestimate the power of a great threat to uh, loosen purse strings and uh, get some funding flowing. So. Uh, Dan, that is so, just that is so cynical. I just can't believe it. <laughs> I know you're shocked. And, Dan, we, you know, we've been talking about Russia, but China has also uh, been uh, putting missiles in space. They could I mean, we were looking we're focusing on Russia, but conceivably China. I don't know if China was a signer of that pact back in the 1960s, but you also have India trying to get involved. And conceivably uh, around, and I I suspect it would be a bit off, but North Korea keeps trying to put anything it can up in the air. (laughs) So it seems. Yeah, and you know, this, this I think gets at a broader point, which a lot of this militarization you know whether or not it's nuclear weapons. There's there's a significant concerns about it. You mentioned China uh, with some of their capabilities. Uh, I believe it was around 2007 they actually demonstrated an anti-satellite capability, um, sent something up, destroyed uh, some sort of satellite in space with a rocket they had. The the actual implications of that was that it created a bunch of debris. So yeah, it was concerning that they could destroy the satellites. But what was more concerning was all the all the crap that it put in space that then everybody else had to watch out for with other systems and uh, uh, you know manned spacecraft and so forth. Uh, Russia demonstrated an anti satellite capability in 2021, and these were all concerns for knocking out capabilities. But the but in many ways the nearer bigger term concern is the debris these things put up. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you know, Dan, we've got we've got uh, both national players and private players that are putting up these constellations of uh, satellites, and in you know, essentially they're they're means of of uh, accessing the internet, so they're in low Earth orbit. Um, yeah. And you know, there's already been this discussion about the 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 debris problem and the clutter problem and the way this can essentially like domino the way it can cascade. Um, yeah. It's a big enough problem without people starting to just intentionally kind of destroy each other's satellites. But you can yeah, easily exactly. envi- you could easily envision a scenario. I think. Well, well, let's let's just start with this point: that is it or is it not likely, just inevitable, that space will become a theater of war? And you know, my guess is yes, it is inevitable. And so, what happens is one of the first things you try to do in a war scenario is take out the other the other party's command and control. And the way you would do that these days in the modern era is you would take out their satellite communication and their internet access. Exactly. And that that is, frankly, the one difference that a nuclear weapon in space would have over some of the others is you could take out a bunch of things with a uh, 
a burst that, you know, the radiation burst causes damage um, across the system. So, uh, and, you know, you, the, you've got China and Russia, you know, there's a concern there. The U.S. could easily do something something similar. Um, and you could see from their perspective, there might be a concern about the U.S. already, you know, positioning for that as well. So that is that is a, um, a real concern. Um, that said, it's also kind of a bit of a boneheaded thing because you're going to end up destroying a lot of your own capacity at the same time. And uh, yeah, e- so, EMPs are pretty indiscriminate, aren't they? Exactly, exactly. So it's you, you kind of uh, it's almost a, a weapon of last resort in that respect to take out uh, both friendly and uh, enemy capabilities. So Dan, uh, playing the devil's advocate here, if Tom is correct, and I think he probably is, that eventually space is going to be militarized anyway. Uh, does it behoove us to go ahead and say, well, let's be the first to get out there and get this thing militarized so that we're in charge of it, just as we wanted to be the first to the moon in order to make sure we had certain controls over it and and other things like that. And, uh, and look how often we've gone back to the moon since, (laughs) uh, you know, there, that is always, uh, I think the argument, the problem is that also then creates additional incentives for us to move quickly. I'd much rather sort of lead towards, uh, something that's more cooperative, cooperative, like we did obviously with some of the early, uh, anti-missile treaties, um, uh, for putting stuff in space, um, and kind of tone down the saber rattling. I think, unfortunately, the reality is, Tom, that you're right, that there's an inevitability to this. There's just so much. Um, you know, incentive, if you will, to put some of the basic capability up there and be ready uh, for the uh, for the eventual um, attack from your enemy. Um, but like I say, a lot of these weapons, you put them up there, if if it becomes clear that they are weapons, they are very vulnerable to being taken out, whether it's directed energy or kinetic kill vehicles or whatever. Um, they're not exactly, uh, um, you know, hard to get at, uh, particularly given the technology that a lot of our adversaries have already. So, um so you, you need to, you know, it takes a lot of planning, a lot of care. Um, and obviously the three players that we're talking about, China, Russia, and the U.S. all probably have that capability. But it, it, um, it's interesting because you can you can game this out to the point where, you know, satellites are probably the most efficient way to do a lot of these functions, to 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 make Internet available over remote areas, yep. uh, surveillance, mapping, all this sort of stuff. Any geospatial function, satellites are certainly the most efficient way to do it. But you can also game it out to the point where satellites could become impractical if if it's you know if it's so easy and common to destroy them. If debris becomes a problem, you know, and we might we might find ourselves needing to find more terrestrial solutions to some of these to some of these problems. I think there's a there's a bit of a, a, a both and kind of thing. Obviously, people are there's a, a ongoing. Um, I mean, ground ground links are not going away by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there's also a ton of work being done on how do we clean up the space environment, and it's anywhere from different collectors that can start to collect some of this debris in orbit. You know, whether it's like big sponges or other things like that that can trap it and bring it down. Um, other ways to uh, to uh, kind of mitigate that. I, there, I haven't seen any good solutions on that, but I know there's a lot of active thinking about that and people trying to come up with ways to uh, declutter the environment and take out some of this uh, derelict materials. Um, you know, when, yeah. I, what, when I mentioned that it, it, it's almost inevitable, um, one thing I learned in reading about this alle- alleged Russian weapon 
is that, you know, we all grew up terrified of ICBMs, but ICBMs are apparently slow enough that there's plenty of time to intercept them with various technologies. And that what's particularly threatening about a space-based weapon is there's just very little time. There's, there's compared, compared to an ICBM, there's very little time to intercept or to mitigate in some way. And so I think that's another reason why it is inevitable that countries will take advantage of all of those capacities and will simply say, you know, it's, it's not that we intend them as offensive weapons. We just want to be, you know, we just want to have something up there just in case, you know? Yeah, that is uh, always the concern. You know, a, you're always able to make that, uh, that argument. And it's, you know, it's like, a, what do you say against that when somebody is yeah. like, we just have to be ready. So, Dan, if we're going to go forward with some kind of effort to create an agreement, a treaty, or, or whatever, what's the best way to do this? Is, it, is this just companies coming together, countries coming together? Is it, I mean, I hate to say under the U.N. because the U.N. is so feckless, but, I mean, can, would you use the U.N.? Would you create something else like when we created the World Trade Organization to try to handle trade? What would be the best way to try to get an agreement? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it, uh, a lot of the things that we've done in the past are just bringing, you know, to having the uh, openness for the discussions, having those uh, conversations, putting the treaties in place. I think, to my mind, at least, a lot of the problem that we have right now is the environment, international environment is so poisoned against uh, sort of collaboration and discussion that it makes a lot of that challenging. But uh, at the end of the day, it's it's really more these sort of bilateral agreements and uh, and maybe getting some of the, the groups together. I guess the UN could do it. I'm, I'm skeptical of their abilities along the lines of what you mentioned. But uh, but having that openness and sort of maintaining those channels for discussion, um, and that's where some of the saber rattling becomes problematic. Uh, it's like how do you how do you actually have an agreement when you're already sort of so suspicious of your enemy because of things you're doing on the ground and so forth. But that's, you know, we've got to sort of tone down the rhetoric at some level and really start to have those constructive conversations around limitations. This kind of goes back to the inevitability point because at the end of the day, countries are going to act in their own self-interest. Yep. And, you know, again, the, the temptation is just irresistible to, to use space to defend yourself. I mean, imagine... You know, imagine the advantages of having some sort of a space-based laser weapon. And if you knew North Korea was launching, you know, a nuclear bomb, you just blow it up on the ground. You know, yep. you just you just target a laser at it. You blow it up in the ground. You see to it that it never leaves the ground. I mean, the the the, the military advantages of that are just so great that I think you, you don't work from an assumption that pe the countries are not going to do this. You work from the assumption that countries are going to do this. Right. And that's why they all investing enormous sums of money, U.S. no exception, uh, in, uh, you know, getting those technologies, uh, getting the best technologies they can to be out in front yep. of it all. So totally agree. Like I said, I, I don't see, unfortunately, any way that you're going to be able to permanently block militarization of space. It is something inevitable just because of all these incentives we've discussed here um, to drive it forward. Um, and I think at the, at the end of the day, you sort of depend on people to be somewhat rational and hopefully maintain the open lines of communications, uh, you know, that we all had during the Cold War at some level, frankly. There was, there was a lot of that back-channeling. Keep that going um, just to sort of uh, keep uh, the, the leaders, shall we say, from doing anything overly stupid. So, so the next iteration of mutually assured destruction or something like that. 
<laughs> I, uh, I I think about that a lot. There's there's actually a lot to be said for a, a mad uh, policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dan, so, uh, what what else do you think our, our listeners need to need to hear from you or need to know on this topic of the militarization of space? Um, you know, I think it comes uh, back to the fact that uh, this is these are there are definitely real concerns here, but these are not sort of immediate uh, you know end of the world crises kinds of things. This has always been a reality. We've had that you know, we've had the ability to do a lot of these analog satellite weapons for decades. Um, you know, ICBMs, you, you said they're slower and easier to get at, and, and yes, that's true at some level, but in fact, they're also very hard to stop. So it's not like uh, there's been uh, a, a surefire way of keeping military uh, militaries from using nuclear weapons uh, across the globe um, for, you know, 40, 50 years, and yet we're still able to move things forward. So I think there's, you know, the threats there, but it 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 doesn't have to be dominating. Most at the end of the day, most of these folks are rational. Realize, you know, the friendly fire issues as much as the, uh, 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 and you know, taking out your adversaries' capabilities. So there's a lot of these balancing forces in place. And at the end of the day, um, you know, it's it's much more about, in my mind, still the opportunity around space, and just keep in mind the the potential threats. But it's not. Don't let it dominate your thinking. Yeah, we are, um, Dan, as you know, we at IPI, and I know you personally, we are big proponents of the benefits of space. So this today's topic <laughs> sort of is, the, is, the, is the, the pessimistic angle, not the optimistic angle. Uh, but you're right. You're right. I mean, sp- there's so much potential for good and for progress in this space that we shouldn't let fear of militarization uh, deter us. Uh, exactly. from continuing down this road and, and just, you know, you, you deal with the threats as they arise, I suppose. Yep. Uh, I mean, nuclear, you know, the, the words nuclear and sort of a, a bomb coming from space have the ability to evoke fear far beyond what is uh, is likely to be reality anytime soon. Yep. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for your time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. And thank you to all of you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We would invite you to check out our website at ipi.org, where you can sign up to receive notices of all of our new podcasts, new content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.